0: Good morning, happy Father's Day. Glad that you're with us on this day. Um, you know, nothing, um, or very few things, be careful on nothing, but very few things have changed my life as much as becoming a father. Um, the, way that, uh, the way that I have new vulnerabilities that I didn't have before, um, the way that my mind is occupied and it's constantly worrying about these, these four young people and where they are in the world. Um, and, so, and so, as I get to thinking about what we're going to do over the next several months here at LCC, I thought, what a fitting day to begin this series. We're calling it Transformed, and we're going to take a look at, at several chapters in the book of Romans. And, um, and I want you to pause and think just for a minute, and we'll come back to this, but pause and think for a minute. What is something that has just, that's changed you in ways that you kind of can never go back? sort of a moment that it's more than just like a slight alteration to life or a, a, a little change, but something that, that might actually rise to the level of like capital T transformation in my life. Like after this point, when I crossed that line, I was never going to be the same person again. And, and, and really, when we get into this series, when we talk about this series in the book of Romans, that's what we're talking about we're talking about more than just slight changes. We're talking about more than just little angles that, that kind of move through life. We're actually talking about something that takes place in us that, that completely alters our life. It makes us into something that we wouldn't have been without this. And the question we're asking is, what does it look like? How do we get there? Right? And so we're, we're going to be doing this, and you, if, if your eyes are really good, you may see a tiny little line of text in that slide that says Romans 12 to 15. Okay? It's real tiny. Um, but but we're, the series we're going to look at is actually Romans 12, the ch- chapters 12 to 15. And, um, and we're going we're gonna to start today by trying to do the impossible. Because okay? we're going to try and set up Romans 12 to 15 in, in one talk, because 12 to 15 don't make a lot of sense without the context of 1 to 11. So I drew the straw that says, in the next 35 minutes, I'm going to try to lay out some of the densest theology of the New Testament for us, so that we can see where we're, where we're headed and why, why this idea of transformation makes such a, a difference in our life, why it's such a big deal. But let's start, if you've got a Bible... If you've got a Bible, go to, the, go to Romans 12, just those very first couple of verses of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And these are, these are this, it's, a, it's a critical passage for us to understand. It's a pivot point. We're going we're to start here and then we're actually going to go back. So it's a, it's a loop movie, okay? We're going to start here and end here. But Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see it there? Be transformed, okay? Be transformed. It, it sits in the middle of these two verses where, where, where Paul, the author of Romans, is sort of turning the book of, of, of Romans from one attention to another, and he's going to get into really practical matters. So where we're headed over the next next couple months is we're going to look at practical areas of life and what it means to be transformed in those areas of life. But again, before we do that, we need to make sure that we understand the water that we're getting into when we talk about this. And, it's, and, and the best place to start is right there on those words, be transformed. Be um, transformed. The, the, the New Testament is written in, in Greek, okay? It was written in Greek, and, and that Greek language carries some different sort of grammatical rules and, and different things, and, and when you see that word be in the New Testament, it, it's, it can insinuate several different things. We tend to think of be as an active word, right? Like, well, like I talk about being a father, like I tell my kids, be kind, right? And I'm saying, like, this is something that you have the power to do, okay? Like, you have a choice to be this thing, okay? So it's an activity that I want to be true of you. It's an action that, that I want you to take. So be kind, be patient, be nice, okay? It's a little different here, okay? It's a little different here. I don't want to get into all the rules of the grammar, but it actually here, it's, it's, it's a passive thing, and that it says, it, this being is sort of like become this thing that you already are. Something is being done to you. Something is being done to you. Now, now get in line with it. it. It's sort of like saying, it is true that you are different. Now, just simply move forward as that different thing. You understand that difference? It's not so much what, what Paul's saying here in this letter to the church in Rome. What Paul's saying isn't so much get, you know, lace up your boots nice and tight, okay? Exercise your, your being muscles and then act in certain ways. What he's saying is you are, you are something, and now your life is about coming into conformity with that thing that's true about you, All right? Do you, you follow that with me? Right? It's a little different from the way we think of be. But, but this idea of transformed is, is critical to our understanding of where we're going. And in order to understand where we're going, we want to look back, And we want to look back in some ways, too, because if you go back to that verse 1, the very first words he says are, I appeal to you, therefore. okay. So Paul has spent what we've divided into 11 chapters to making an appeal. He's making an appeal. And he's saying, I appeal to you. And based on that appeal, therefore, this is is what what ought to happen. You ought to be transformed. You ought to be be different not just not just changed in action but actually you are something different from what you were before this okay? so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to rewind the tape okay we're going to rewind the tape and I'm going to I'm going to keep up with me right i'm going to try and run a, a 4 minute mile this morning okay i told somebody this morning i don't think i could run a 4 minute quarter mile um, but, but, but in this context, we're gonna, we're gonna walk through several ideas in these first 11 chapters to make sure that we understand when Paul's inviting us into this transformed life, what is it that brings about the transformation? What makes it possible for us to be something fundamentally completely different from what we were before? How does he understand? transformation. Well, in order to do that, we need to ask ourselves a couple questions about the, the, just, just the New Testament itself, okay, to understand the context of what we're looking at. And you see, the New Testament was, was and, and the Old Testament for that matter, but, but it was, what we would call it was, an, it was occasional. The writings in the New Testament were occasional. It didn't mean they just wrote them from time to time, which is true, but it actually means they were written because of certain occasions that they were invited into, Okay? And so, so understanding those occasions is really important. Now it's also important for us to understand that the fact that they were occasional, and it was humans who wrote them, and those humans wrote them in their own words for a particular audience it doesn't take away from the fact that in the midst of the process, God himself, God himself was working in the inspiration of these writings. And so, it, so it, 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 it's important for us to understand, and, and, and there's a question when we come to the Scriptures, it's important for us to ask this question, like, what is revealed by and about God in the writing? Because it's God's Word that God moved these people on these occasions to write the very things that He was, he was intending for their audience to read. And the, the amazing thing about the inspiration of God is that that audience doesn't stop with just the people who receive the letter, Even in the first century, it went out to other churches. And today, we're just, by extension, we're another church that's looking at this letter from Paul because God chose to embody it with his life. It's inspired by him. Okay, It's his word to us. So what is it telling us about him? Why is he giving it to us? And we ask questions of the text to help answer those questions. But we also ask a second question that has to do with the human side, and we ask, why was it written? What questions are trying to be addressed? Because here's how we avoid sort of getting off track. Here's how we avoid going down trails that the text itself isn't trying to answer, but we try to use the text to answer those questions. We need to understand what questions are actually being asked. What questions are are of of concern to, to the author and to the audience? And this letter to the church in Rome has been studied, probably maybe John's gospel, the book of Romans. These are, these are the books of the New Testament that have been studied through the centuries like none other, right? trying to answer those very questions. What, what is it that God is giving us about himself? And why was it written? If we understand who it was written to, what, what, what was important to them, why Paul chose to write it, it helps us start to unlock the, the kinds of questions that we should be asking here. And so indulge me for just a minute with Romans because I want to share a little bit about what was going on and why this book of Romans was probably written because I think it's going to inform some of the questions that we ask and answer. And I think it's also going to help us understand the book of Romans in its totality. So so the book of Romans was likely written in in about the the mid-50s A.D., first century, so around A.D. 55 to 57, somewhere in there, certainly before the end of the book of Acts, because Paul writes at the beginning of the book of Romans and says, I hope to come to see you, the church in Rome. And at the end of the book of Acts, Luke records that, that Paul was in Rome. Okay? So, so the book of Romans was written sometime in the period of time, probably between A.D. 53 when Paul is in Corinth, and we know that from historical, um, from, from archaeology has told us when they were there. Okay? But A.D. 53 through about A.D. 60, when when the book of of Acts was finished. So it's written in that period of time. And it's written written in a particular context. Something else had happened in the world that impacted the church in Rome, unlike any other church. We actually read about it in the book of Acts. We meet Aquila and Priscilla, two two people who play a a part in Paul's missionary journey. we meet them, it says that they had been kicked out of Rome. Okay? They'd been kicked out of Rome. And so we, if you ask the question why, and we kind of go back to our history text, we find Roman historians and others who tell us that, that the, the emperor Claudius, okay? Claudius before, prior to A.D. 50, around A.D. 49, Claudius had banished all Jews from the city of Rome. They had to leave. Okay? No idea exactly how many that was, but we do know that it was a significant number of people, more than hundreds, probably into the tens of thousands. He'd kick them out of Rome, and he kicked them out of Rome, it says, because they were constantly having disputes among themselves, and there was a lot of dissension stirred up, and we can kind of infer into that that perhaps you had Jewish Christians and Jewish non-Christians who were at odds, okay? That's a best guess. We don't have any, any recorded evidence of that, but maybe that's what was going on. But either way, all the Jews are kicked out of Rome. It didn't matter if they were a Jewish person following Christ, if they were a Jewish person following the law. It didn't matter. They were kicked out of Rome. Now, what we, what we also know is that at that point in time, already, Rome had a, a sort of flourishing movement of churches, right? It had a flourishing movement of churches. And we also know that at anywhere that there were flourishing movements of churches, it was, they were almost 100% of the time they were started by, by individuals who were Jewish in their previous religion and came to accept Jesus as the Messiah, and they followed Christ. Okay? And so you have, you have churches in the city of Rome, okay? churches in the city of Rome who are led by what we would call Jewish Christians. They were, they were, they were Jews who accepted Christ, And they are the leaders of those church and now all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if they're Christian or Jewish religiously, the Romans didn't make any distinction on that. All of a sudden, they were kicked out of Rome, okay? So off they went. And what went from there is that those churches in Rome, they didn't just pack up the tents and go, well, I guess we're done. We can't have church anymore. They continued to meet. They continued to grow. They continued to bring converts to Christ, without the Jewish leadership. Okay? Now, ironically, another character in history becomes that, that was no friend of Christianity in the end, but, but in this instance, maybe wasn't so bad, but the Emperor Nero. Okay? Nero comes in, and, and anytime there was a, a change in leadership, the old sort of edicts of the past just sort of dwindled away, and, and eventually these Jewish folks began to, to move back into Rome. And we can, would suspect that many of them move back into Rome and move back into the churches that they had been a part of previously. Okay? So you can probably, if you put those pieces together, imagine you've got, you've got somewhere around AD 50, all the Jewish Christians leave Rome, the Gentile Christians take over leadership of the church, and for a period of maybe seven or eight years, up to seven or eight years, those Gentile Christians led the church. The church flourished. People came to know the Lord. Things were great. And in steps back in Jewish leadership. Okay, Probably folks who, who came back thinking, they're going to be so excited. We're returning. But <laughs> based on sort of external clues and a lot of internal clues in Romans, it seems like they weren't necessarily welcomed with open arms, okay? The new, remember we started with this? The New Testament is an occasional writing, <laughs> okay? Very real problems in the world, very real difficulties and challenges, and Paul's writing into that context, okay? So Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, and there's certainly more going on than just what I've described to you, but it, I think it's gonna help inform us on, on the, all of the book of Romans, and not just these first 11 chapters. But I would say there are large sections of these first 11 chapters that make no sense without the larger context. So these first 11 chapters talk about the, the, the work of God in all people through all history. And, and we have a tendency in the 20th century to, to take a good thing, which is our assumption that the Scriptures exist for us to come to know God, but, but we also sort of assume them in our own context. And so we assume them in a very much a context of, of a history of Western philosophy and systematic beliefs, and we sort of assume that, that Paul was writing in a way that appeals to us. And that's led to things that, that can kind of get in the way of us really understanding the flow of what's going on. And particularly when we get to the chapters just before where we're going to focus the next few months, the chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, it's great to, we like to pull out verses and we're going to just do that as we walk through, but it's important to understand that they all, all of these things were written trying to address something that was going on in this Roman church, okay, that was going on in this Roman church. And it had to do with, you know, who is the gospel for, who gets the gospel? Has, who has God used to bring the gospel to bear on the world? Those are the kinds of questions that are being asked because they were the questions of this first century church in the city of Rome that they were struggling with one another to try and get answers so let's take a look at some big ideas and some passages of Scripture in the book of Romans. If you want to keep up turning pages or flipping through your, your uh, phone Bible, great. I'm going to put them all up in front of you as well, though, okay? But I, but I essentially, there, you, and again, there's so much study on the book of Romans, so don't take today as the final word on, on how to stru- the book of Romans is structured. But I think that, that Romans essentially is giving us, uh, these first 11 chapters are giving us three really big ideas, okay? Three really big ideas, and it wouldn't make a great sermon if it was four or two. It's always three. So the first big idea is this, that, Rome, that Paul lays out to the church in Rome. Now, remember the context, Jews and Gentiles, okay? Two separate groups sort of battling over, you know, I don't know how friendly or unfriendly it was, but sort of battling over control in the church. And the first big idea that Paul lays out is this, we all have the same problem, Every one of us has the same problem. Let's take a look at a few of the things he says in, in chapter 1, verse 22. Okay, he's, he's, he's casting this wide net, and he's talking about those who think that they're, that they're wise. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. He says, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay? So he, he, to, to set this up, Paul begins by, by telling the, the church in Rome, he says, he says look, there's something that just sort of happens. It just sort of happens. It happens all over the place. Okay? It's, like a, it's like a fundamental view of the human condition. We think that we're smart, okay? but, but in our, our, all of our attempts to be so smart, we wind up looking like fools. And then he says these, these two words I think are so important to us, and exchange, that we exchange the glory of God, the God who's real, for images, you know, this is clearly, he's talking about idolatry, but, if, but the context of idolatry in the first century and the context of idolatry in the 21st, the principle is the same, but the context is different. We, we've, there's been an exchange that's gone on. And that exchange was for, instead of God, we swap out the God who is real for a God of our own making. We take things of this earth, mortal man, Creeping things, birds, animals, okay? Those were the images that they would have had. Ours might be the money, the house, the perfect family, things of this world, and we make those things our God. That's essentially what Paul says here in chapter 1. And this is like, this is like the, the, the spark that lights the fuse of what he's going to say moving forward, Okay? He says, the problem isn't so much that people do bad things. That's, it's, you know, people do bad things. And he goes on from there in this chapter to list some of those things. Everything from like disobedience to parents through sexual immorality. It's like he just sort of like blasts out oh, this long list of potential sinful patterns in life. But he starts it by saying it all begins when we make an exchange. We swap something we swap God, the God who is real, for a God of our own making. We all do it. Okay, So this is, this is the net that he first casts when he says we have the same problem, Jew and Gentile alike. And that problem leads to a consequence. It leads to, you know, this action-reaction. So in chapter 2, he begins to start to focus on, okay, what is God doing here? He says in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, He, being God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life, okay? So he sort of like sets this up and says, Look, if you can do all this and do it just right, you get the reward. That's like the system that was built. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So, so this exchange takes place, but those who can keep the rules, can keep all the law, God in his righteousness sort of has to give them what the, the, the good stuff. He has to give them the eternal life. They get to be with God if they can keep it all. But you see, the story doesn't end there because we know something else to be true that Paul, and he actually quotes the Psalms, he says this, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. So remember, if you can be righteous, if you can do it all, you get eternal life. So we're still talking about the problem. The problem is you have to be perfect in order to get eternal life. Okay, But he says here in chapter 3, it's written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless." No one does good, not even one. You catch it? Do you catch this? So he says, Look, here's the, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We all make this exchange. We swap out the God who's real for a God of our own making. And in the midst of that system, God's provided a path. And the path is live up to my righteousness, God says. That's what it takes. You have, to, you, have to, you have to achieve my righteousness in order to receive the life. But chapter 3 hits with this just thud, right? Because I can't do it. No one ever has, right? None of us. We've never done it. We're stuck with, stuck with our sin. We're stuck with our unrighteousness. And this is the problem. And for many of us, this is a verse we may know, but verse... Chapter 3 later on says, all have sinned and fall short of that glory of God. You see, this is the problem we're stuck in. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're really good at keeping the law or not. It's a bar you can't jump. This is our problem. The standard is a standard that we can't reach on our own. You with me? This is the context that we're we're dealing with in Romans. So here's the second big idea. God has provided the same solution to all people. So we start with the same problem. doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile, today we could say American, non-American, whatever. We all have the same problem. And here's the, the beauty of God's system, right? He's provided the same solution as well. All people, it doesn't matter where you come from. Look at what he says See, see, did you catch uh, 3.23 where we just left off? Let's read the next verse with it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 3.23 and 24 are a pivot point where he begins to point to the solution and says this. Just as we all have the same problem, the same solution is available to all. Now, unless we read that as everybody's in, right? Everybody's sinned, but everybody gets the... The grace. the grace is present, but he's gonna go on and say more. Okay? So remember the Jew-Gentile problem. Look at chapter four. If you're if you're still following along, good good work. Chapter four. Verse 13. Verses 13 to 15, he says, The promise to Abraham is offspring, this is the, these are the Jews, that he would be, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Okay? So remember this is it's not it's not in the law. Nor is it in like family heritage or national heritage at this point when Paul's writing. For it is, it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Like if you're counting on the law, faith is meaningless to you. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay. So look what he's saying. Look what he's saying. He says the, the law brings something into play. It brings in a standard to keep. But the standard, okay, the standard is unkeepable. So what are we supposed to do for those who've been trying to reach the standard? Is the answer to just work harder? Is the answer to try and keep the law better? Is that the solution? And so therefore, those who know the law better can keep the law better. They have a better chance of of knowing and being with God. Is that the answer? He says, no, okay? It's the adherence of the law to be heirs that that, that that nullifies faith, okay? So look at chapter 5. This is a long section of discussion on the law. In chapter 5, he says this. Verses 20 and 21, he says, The law came in to increase the trespass, okay? Like, we've all sinned. The law makes it apparent to us. We can't keep this. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, eternal life isn't through keeping the law. It's Jesus Christ who undoes the law. Christ comes in, and he doesn't just cover our sin. Paul writes in Galatians, he actually takes our sin, and and he takes the law, and he eliminates it that the law is no longer a pertinent measure of whether or not someone is righteous. It doesn't stand as the standard any longer. And so, again, it doesn't matter whether or not we come to this, this problem. It doesn't matter the angle we come to it from. It doesn't matter the information that we've been given. It doesn't matter our heritage. It doesn't matter our standing. Christ is the solution for all. Right? Christ is a solution. In chapter 6, he goes on, verse 22. He says, but now you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Sanctification is like a $10 theological word, but here's what it means. It means sa- sanctification is this process by which the power of God is being lived out in my life in such a way that I'm becoming more and more like the thing God says that I am, which he names in chapter 8 as the image of his son Christ. I'm being made more and more like Christ. And this is the, this is the transformational power. This is what, what happens for those who reject some, any standard that says, I can keep it, and in exchange, we, we honor the God who is real and his son Christ Christ as the path to eternal life. This is the argument that Paul's making. Right? It's the argument that he's making. So stay with me. There's one more big idea. Actually, there's two more. I snuck a fourth one in. All right. But the third thing is that the plan of God from the very beginning was salvation to the world through Israel. Okay. Now, this is this becomes an important idea. This is where the first century context comes in because remember the clash. The clash comes in, and, 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 and interestingly enough, I think at this stage of the of the the letter to Rome, to the church in Rome, the Gentiles would be going, yeah, yeah, forget about those guys. God all along, he was just setting up the Jews to fail and they lived up to what he was setting them up for. And Paul goes, no, 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 wait a minute. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. So look at, at, at chapter 9. He says, it, it's still available, but I'm gonna, we're going to jump ahead several chapters to chapter 9. Are you there? Chapter 9, verse 30. We're going to read 30 through 33. He says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have, at- have attained it? He's, he's saying like, because one of the complaints would be like, look, these Gentiles, they've done nothing but sit around and worship idols and indulge themselves, and now all of a sudden they get in? That's not fair. Okay, He says that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Like, God set the the Israelites up to fail, right? But look at what he says in verse 32. Why? Was Was it because they didn't keep the law? He says, no, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he's going to define what the stumbling stone is here in a second. As it is written... Behold I am laying in Zion or within Israel within within Israel a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The old system that Paul's working against is a system that said if you live up to the law if I just live up to the law if I do all the things okay if I do them right God is then obligated to give me eternal life. It's it's, it's a transaction, okay? I do all of these things. You have to pay me my wages for all of my works. And Paul says, no. See, here's the thing. It came through Israel, but Israel misunderstood it. Adherence to the law wasn't the problem. The problem was a lack of faith in the one who gave the law. The law itself wasn't flawed, It's not like God made some grand mistake, Old Testament, and he corrected it with Jesus, New Testament. It's one story. God is righteous and holy, and he chose to reveal his righteousness and holiness to a people who were descendants of a man, Abraham. He gave him the initial stages, and he unfolded it over centuries, even millennia, to these people. And over time, they did the very same thing we do. They began to worship the law, the earthly thing, instead of, remember, the exchange, instead of the God who gave it. You follow this? This is critical when we get to chapter 12 and be transformed, because... A a chief mistake that you and I can make today, a chief mistake when we begin to read in Romans chapter 12, a chief mistake we can make is to say, I can do this. And if I do this, I'm good. But do you see the argument that Paul's making? He's saying it doesn't, A, you can't. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can. You can't. B, Even if you can, you miss it because the ultimate standard, the ultimate goal is trust in the God who gave it, not in the keeping of it. Do we catch the difference? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't think about this the way that just comes naturally to us. Romans 10, one more. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing, giving his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter the avenue through which I come to him. It's calling on him, and this idea of calling on him is a call, a cry of desperation. I have no hope but you. That's what's going on here. Paul writes this letter in the midst of a very real tension, and he winds up handing down something to us inspired by God that so powerfully undoes everything I just want to do naturally. I, 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 want, to, I want to make my own path. I want, to, I want to achieve an outcome in the end that others can look at me and say, he did such a good job of that. Isn't God lucky to have him? Because he's one of the best at doing it right. And we can't, we cannot. Today, over the next couple months, looking at these sections in Romans, beyond into the rest of our life, we cannot get caught into believing that somehow the power to please God lies in our good actions, lies in our ability to serve. Oh, we ought to, but that doesn't, that's not the lever that we pull that makes God happy, that forces him somehow to give us life with him eternally. That's not the system. That's the old way of thinking transformational, a transformed life doesn't think about it that way. So let me close quickly with this thought. It's a final idea. I didn't number it because I'm not going to have four, okay? One final idea. Paul knew the reality of this transformation. When Paul writes this, he's writing obviously through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but think about where Paul came from. If you don't know the story, in Acts chapter 9, it's recorded, and I would encourage you to read it. Christ interrupted Paul's life. Saul, Paul, he was Saul and started to use a, a Gentile named Paul. But Christ interrupted his life. He was set out to see that anyone who, who denied the power of the law, that was his mission. These Christians were saying that the law was worthless, that all they needed was Christ and his resurrection. And Saul says, No, there's that's that's like a that's a punishable offense, punishable up to death. And so he's on his way to take Christians captive because they are rejecting the power of the law. And Christ steps in. Christ steps in and interrupts it and says, why are you tormenting me? This stunned Paul, right? (laughs) He's got new information. It, It contradicted his view of the world. He was wrestling to keep the standard. He was wrestling to look good enough, be good enough to keep the law. This interrupted it. He goes on and he, he does question it. He says, I, you know, I need, I need it explained to me. And God sends a man to explain it to him. Ananias explains it to him. Paul goes on, he verifies this information in other churches. He spends time in community testing this information. Is, could this possibly be the way? And it's fascinating in, in Acts chapter nine. The Lord doesn't tell Paul this. Not in chapter 9. He actually tells the man that was sent to Paul to explain it to him that Paul's going to have a special mission, and that mission is to take this message of the gospel out to the Gentiles. That's his mission. And this transformation that takes place in Paul, it takes place in such a way that Paul grabs that mission and runs with it. He lived it to the point that it cost him his life. That's a powerful transformation. When we read it on the page in Acts chapter 9, you can read the whole story in about three minutes. It didn't take place in three minutes. Christ interrupted, and it was days of questioning and years of questioning. But Paul was being transformed. When he writes this, he's saying in Romans chapter 12, when he writes, be transformed, he's talking about an ongoing process that he himself was experiencing and so over the next few weeks, we can be transformed. We can do this because God makes it possible. Not on our own power, but we, it can happen. If here's, here's our role, just as Paul experienced it, pay attention to, to God's interruption in your life. We actually talked about this last week with Isaiah. Pay attention to what God is doing in our lives to interrupt us, to stop the patterns where we believe we can just make a go of this life on our own. We need to take ownership of the full message of the gospel of God's grace. Not, not just the parts that sort of suit us. Not just the parts that, that we like that, that, that already match up with what we believe to be true in life. Like we're taking our life and we're trying to just bring Jesus over on the side and cram him in and say, hey, can't you just approve of what I'm already doing? But take ownership of all the crisis, even the stuff that's gonna, that's, that will radically transform the way that we think about our world. Take it all. Test it. Verify it. Verify this message of God's grace. Do that in community. We are life community church because we believe that the testing of this message takes place when we with one another, look one another in the eye and say, I'm not sure about this idea. I'm not sure about this message. I'm not sure that what I'm doing in my life is necessarily right, wrong, or otherwise. Can we... Work through this together. And then live the mission. Once transformed, believe that it's true and walk it. And it's not a one-time, it's, a, it's an ongoing submission to the work of God in our lives. But we do have hands and feet in it. That as God redeems us more and more, we move further and further out into the mission that he's given us. And this is the process that we see in the scriptures of transformation. Wanna, we're going to sing one more song, but before we do, Romans chapter 11, right before the, the uh, I, I appeal to you, therefore. Roman, Romans chapter 11, <clears throat> the very end of it, ends with almost like a song of praise that Paul writes to God we actually, this is going to be sort of our closing prayer for the, the message. But it's, it's, there's a short video here that has the words of that prayer. It's, it, it's verses um, 33 through 35, or 36, sorry, of, of Romans chapter 11. So I'm just going to invite you to look at that and, and, and look at these words and ask, is this, is, this, is this my view of what God has done in the world, in, 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 in my life and in the world around me?